Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Telich Talks. We're going to go back in time and re-release a couple of interviews I did with some prominent high school football coaches here in Northeast Ohio. Steve Trevisano, Triv, from Mentor High School, and Max Stevens from Cleveland Heights. They, coincidentally, will be meeting this coming Friday night in round one of the Division I playoffs. Mentor is the top seed, and the Tigers of Cleveland Heights are the number eight seed in this region, Region 1. Both are accomplished coaches. Triv is in his final year at Mentor and has had a tremendous career taking the cards to the state championship game four times. They're still looking for that first state championship win. And Max Stevens is a former NFL player. His son has played in the National Football League as well. And he gives great perspective about how his career went, how Herschel Walker had an influence on him, and many other aspects of his coaching life. Re-releasing Coach Triv and Max Stevens here on episode 42 of Tellage Talks. Hope you enjoy. Coach Triv, uh, please explain to me what happened the one day that you got up and said, I, I've coached a long time and I, I want to kind of explore other options and see what's up. Well, you know, it, it's one of those things you always are keeping in mind. You know, I've always said from the beginning, I didn't want to stay too long where I couldn't give the kids what they deserved. And, you know, I think I'm still doing that and, and like doing it. And, you know, just felt it was a time to see what else I want to do. And, and uh, we'll, we'll think about it come January when we're done here at Mentor and, and move on. But, you know, it was something I've been thinking about for a while. And, Let's see what else is out there for me. Mm-hmm. Let's go back 23 years or so <laughs> wow. when you took over. Um, the way you were raised, the way you were brought up, what parts of your development do you think led you to the point where you felt confident enough that you could become the head coach of a, a big high school football program like Memphis? Sure. Well, you know, I was lucky. My father was a, a longtime football coach. My uncle was a longtime head football coach. So when you... It, it kind of grew up around it. You know, I got up when I was a little guy and dad three in the back seat of the station wagon before they seat belted you in and, and uh, took you to two days and you stayed there all day in August. And, you know, so I grew up around it and grew up around my uncle and my dad and, and all that. So football has been a big part of it. And, you know, I think I was well trained and well prepared from them. And then obviously the people I had coached for over the years and, you know, I, I felt it was, uh, you know, I was a guy who can change this place and get this where it needed to be. Who were some of the figures that kind of helped you in your development, aside from the family that really cultivated your love of football? Sure, you know, I, I was lucky. Charlie Mental, who was uh, one of my coaches here, and Ness Janiak were both here, and I got to be a part of them. And then obviously I started with um, uh, Steve Willwall out and uh, Anthony Wayne, um, you know, I had some great coaches I played for at Bowling Green who helped along the way. And, and you know, I spent some time with Donnie Anderson and, and, and a lot of the guys around here had helped, uh, you know, John Gibbons and Chuck Kyle and Russ Jakes and all those guys when I was an assistant going around and listening to and talking to them. And so it was just a lot of people helped me get to where I'm at. And, you know, I learned a lot through them. And I think to try to do the same thing since I've become a head coach and help young guys to, to do the same. When you were an assistant in fact-finding and talking to the Jakeses and the Kyles and the Gibbs, Gibbies, those guys, uh, what were some of the common threads that you, you maybe kind of uh, helped forge kind well, of your you makeup know, I, as a coach? I think you got the, the idea of how you do things. 
you know, I watched them and, and the, the role models they were and how they worked and the time they spent in the game and, you know, how John did this on defense and how Chuck did that on defense and Russ on offense and Donnie Anderson on offense. So, you know, I got to see a lot of different things um, through different people, and I think that's that's the way you learn. Uh, you know, and uh, Nick Toth, who's over at Strongsville now, is a big part of that, and just learning from these guys and and different pieces from different people how they do that. And I think you, you develop, and then you take your own style of what you have, and you turn it into into what your program is. It's it's a constant process of changing and learning, and you know we still even this past year went to five or six different clinics and spent time with different people. So you're always learning and, and developing. Tell our listeners how important that is. And I can, as an aside, my father was a longtime businessman, and I could recall in his early 80s he was still going to conferences to try to to better his knowledge of that his craft. And that's what coaches have to constantly do. It's always being done. And, you know, from the time you end, so we'll end on, uh, what we end on a Friday night last year, that we were in on Monday, you collect the equipment, which I won't miss that day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you collect the equipment, and then the next day it's in the meetings. You know, what's our strengths? What's our weaknesses? And we work for that week trying to decide where we at you know I meet with every kid and and as soon as the season's over and where they're at so then then we look and say where do we need to go and what do we need to develop yeah you see the men are offense and the men are defense it looks the same but it's always different you know we'll get different personnel different people so you're always adapting you're always learning you're spending the month of January February March you know learning what you need to do, and then you're implementing it in March, April, May, June, July, and, and hopefully it, it worked out well. I can remember back in, in 01, we started some no-huddle stuff, and we started some shotgun stuff, and then in 02, we knew we had a really talented class coming, and um, you know, I knew what we wanted to do, and then we, I knew this longtime wide receiver coach from Notre Dame named Erwin Meyer. Yeah. Who just got the BG job, and I was a BG grad. So we went out there, uh, probably two or three days in his first year, and we sat down with his staff, and they were gracious enough to teach us. And we just kind of developed this offense. And, you know, and each year we're tweaking it to what we do and, you know, and, and making it better for what we have each year. And Urban is obviously adapted and adjusted the way he did his sure. thing at all of his different stops along the way. Yep. But you've been here, the, you know, for many years, straight years. So the mentor way that you initiated or started when you became the head coach, is it exactly the same, you know, the principles I per se? The, I or, think or the principles are the same. We we sat down a long time ago, well, what's our greatest strength here at Mentor? We said numbers. We have a little more kids than a yeah. lot of the people Big around. Big school. So we said we're going to play kids one way, and we're going to try to play fast. And let's see if we can wear people out. So we kind of changed the games the way it's kind of been played in high school around here. Um, we really did that. And... Um, and we've kept those principles. Now, you know, one year we might be five wides, and next year we might be two backs and, and three wides. You know, so we change it based on what our strength is. We're always getting different kids. It's not like, you know, the NFL where you're setting this or college, you can go get this type of kid. So we're always changing. It's the same principles of, of playing fast, of spreading the field apart, trying to use all 53 yards of it. And, and uh, you know, we like to throw a little bit more than some people do and and you know and but we've developed that we have a great flag football league 
We yeah, I'm kind of curious that. to see about the development. You know, how kids we we developed better. it through that flag, and then our, our youth to our you know our, our little league football tackle football to our middle school. So we've kind of developed it, and you know when a kid comes here, they know how to catch, they know how to run, they know how to throw. So we've kind of developed it from the bottom up, and it's just kind of carries up. And every year we've got an abundance of kids who can catch the ball and. We've been lucky to have some great quarterbacks over the years, and we always tend to have one every couple of years, and that's kind of made us to where we've been. So how do you project a kid? I remember asking Chuck Kyle the same question, a kid who may be a, you know, a, a sophomore or freshman, and, or let's just say an eighth grader. You see it at the middle schools. And can, can, you, can you picture what this kid might be in three, four years? We, we try. We, we've always had a youth camp. So, you know, we're kind of down there. We said, well, that kid's got a pretty good arm, and we keep an eye on him. And we can get a pretty good idea in seventh, and by the time they get in eighth grade what they're going to be. Right? This kid's got a chance to be pretty good. You know, he's got the height, and he's got the athletic ability, and he's got an arm. So they're, they're pretty easy to project it. You know, I can think back to Tom Abbott years ago when he was in um, – when we just started this type of offense, I think he was in ninth grade or eighth or ninth grade and saw him at a, at a camp going, yeah, that's a perfect fit. And, you know, and then we got, uh, you know, and a Chris Jockerman and then Bartansky and, you know, Mitchell Trubisky and, you know, so you're always finding that next kid. And then we came into obviously um, Todd is Tatarunas to, to Ian Kip. You saw him as a, an eighth grader and this, oh, this kid's going to be a really good one. And you start developing and preparing him and, you just keep going. All right, let's talk a little bit about Mitch, because Mitch is probably the most, the one with the yeah, most. Yeah, he's doing pretty well. He's doing all right. Yeah, <laughs> he's currently employed in the National Football League. That speaks volumes. Let's really dig into what was it about him that you saw young, and then take us through the process of getting him developed as in his early years of development, and then as he matured. We saw real early, because Mitch was always at our camp. You know, now, now the camp is we run it through him now. Yeah, and that's great. It's a cool <clears> and gesture. It is really cool, and and you saw special, and you saw he was bigger, and he was ran well, and he threw well. But most importantly, you saw a kid who was a gym rat. He traveled with us as a little guy. He was a ball boy, and he was always there watching, and he's always there learning, and you just had that something special you saw as a as a. I want to say an elementary kid to a middle school kid okay. to, you know, we brought him up in ninth grade and he played JV ball and got hurt, I think, partially through his ninth grade year. But we knew we had coming up this kid who had, you know, he had the size and the speed and the arm talent. And then he had that special it factor of he he loved the game of football and he was going to, you know, I, he was going to do what he needed to do to get better. And he'd, he'd spend countless hours here throwing and running and watching and learning and, and doing all those things. So it was, it was, you knew you had it. And then at that point it was just about developing, developing him each year. And he came in as a sophomore and played great. And yeah. we went to the playoffs and then his junior year, I think we went lost in the regional finals. And then obviously his senior we went to the final four. So, you know, you just watch that development and growth of a, of a special young man. And so how did you hone his skills within the confines of this offense? And did it, mold, did it mold? Did it develop? Did it evolve even more so as you saw, whoa, he can do this? Sure. Wasn't quite certain that he had that ability to do Each this. year it's evolving. And you, in the same way for with Ian now, you're, you take him as a ninth grader and, and you're, you're basically teaching him what you want to do. 
and you and you're starting to work on his feet and you're working on his throwing motion and you're working on his his reads and all those things and then the next year you're you're putting more on his plate you know now and he was he was starting as a sophomore and and you're just trying to get him comfortable and 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 continuing to work on his technique and and we do a lot of that in the off season you know you can work with kids one on one and he got a lot of work that way of working on his skills and and then obviously his junior year you expand it and then by the time you got to his senior year you know he was putting the whole team on his back and and i mean that was the triple overtime with ignatius and uh, down 21 to eds and but that you knew you had but it was just that kid who plays longer relaxes a little bit more and plays and able to see and do more than that kid who's in the first year it's just it's just natural progression of the game how well could you ride him when he was younger and i would assume the great ones are those that are not afraid to take um, a stern admonishment from their coach. Yeah, you know, he, he was always, he, he's the kind of kid who was always hard on himself. So he was going to be critical of himself, and he was not going to be sensitive, um, you know, if someone mm-hmm. was getting on him. And he knew it, and he took his coaching, and he's had some great coaching over the years. And, and he took it and developed it and learned from it. And, you know, I, I can only remember one time I ever had to yell at him, and, and he never did that thing again. You know, so it was his he was just special from a lot of different ways in that point. So he gets out of, uh, uh, you know, he becomes Mr. Football, your second one, Bartansky mm-hmm. being being the first one, and he goes to North Carolina. How constantly are you watching the development of someone that you led through the halls here in Mentor as they go along, and, and how much advice can you give them as they move on their, their well, you, career you know, path? At that point when he goes away, the first time is just trying to get him to be comfortable. You know, you're going away a long way from home and just getting adapted. So it's more of being a, uh, somebody to talk to at that point. And, and, you know, just hang in there, keep working in those points. And then, then, it, then you start to become a fan as a coach. Now you're watching him on TV playing, and now you're like a fan and a dad watching him play. And now, and even now, I, even back when he was in North Carolina, it was much easier coaching him than watching in the stands. I bet. <laughs> I yeah. get a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but uh, it's been fun to watch his development and growth and to see the things he does and, you know, just to see the way he still handles himself as a true professional and just a great person. And in the day of so many crazy characters, it's nice to see that kid do it the right way. How was that as the, the, the excitement was building towards the draft you know, a couple of years ago? He ends mm-hmm. up being number two, two. overall. Yep. Uh, he kind of shot up in the minds of all the experts in a fairly fast way, didn't he? He did, because he really didn't start until the last year at North Carolina. And then um, you know, he played very, very well. And then, you know, he's... He's the kind of tools of what you want in that quarterback, you know, kind of like Baker, that guy who can run around and throw. You know, that kid who just sits in the pocket's a little bit more of a sitting duck in today's day and age. And, you know, those guys who can move and make plays on their feet, the Patrick Mahomes, you know, uh, Dak Prescott, those kind of guys have become the guys that they're looking for. So he had all that. and. You know, it was, it was a fun process. It was neat going down to the draft and, and getting to see that, and it, it was cool. You, you probably were not worried about how he would handle the pressure of being the quarterback right. in a city of broad shoulders, you know, the, the Windy City. But he's been able to handle that, but it's a difficult process to go through. It's very difficult. You know, there's always people 
criticizing this and criticizing that and you know he, he catches a lot more flack, flack than he probably should um there's a lot of quarterbacks who aren't any close to him that get a lot more credit than he does but you know what that doesn't bother him he knows what he has to do and um he knows how to do it and he handles his, himself beautifully and you know he, he tunes out the outside and he worries about what he does he, he's very comfortable in who he is and and uh that makes him so, so special. How cool has it been for you to have him include you in some of those big moments? That's been neat, and, and to be a part of it and, and to have him keep you as part of his life. And, you know, I'll text him before games, and he always texts me back and um, to go to the draft and, you know, come down to a game, you know, in Chicago. Unfortunately, we only get to the cold ones because you got to wait till our season's <laughs> yeah, you over. Have, but You, you want to be busy yeah, as late as possible. So, um, you know he, he's done a really good job and he comes to the camp and he comes back and works out and you know he worked out with Ian the one day in the summer and you know it's just been nice to to let it have him be a part of Mentor and, and, and us. So as you look back over these 23 years what are some of the not necessarily specific moments but what 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 things do you kind of cling to overall generically? Well speaking? you know I, I sit here every day and think how lucky I've been you know, I've, I've had, I haven't worked a day in my life. <laughs> I got to retire at 56 years old or whatever. And um, I, I've got to work with such great people. Um, the assistant coaches have been just phenomenal. The kids we have here, the parents we have here are just outstanding. You know, and to watch them grow and not just the football part of it, to watch them become husbands and, and fathers and successful in the business world. Got a bunch doing successful in, in the coaching world. You know, it's it's just been, it's 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 been amazing just to sit back and watch and you know, I got the two at Ohio State now and the one at Michigan yep. State. It's, and you know, I've got a lot of successful businessmen, lawyers, uh, you know, doctors, you know, it, it, that's been the coolest part. And that's really what our job is. As a high school football coach, yeah, my job's to win games. I get that. We'll win games. My biggest job is, you know, have we turned these guys into good young men? You know, they're great fathers. Yeah. They're great husbands. They're successful in the world. Then I, then I know I've done my job well, and, and that's been the fun part of it, just to watch these kids, and they'll contact you and come back and see you, and that's, that's the coolest part of it. It's kind of a fine line that you have to walk between. As you say, you have to concentrate because you want to win games. Sure. And, you know, that's what life's all about, win your matchups. But you you look big picture. Absolutely. And big picture is the development of these young, moldable individuals into young men, into fathers, into future coaches or future yep. CEOs and things. And that's, and that's really what it is. And I think too many people now in this profession look at it you know in high school it's still and really in college it's still about developing them into men and, and and we too many people lose that sight you know if you do your job right you're still going to win games yeah you know you just got to do your job right and remember really what my job is and uh you know i think we've done a good job of that here you have a young uh, uh, talent here on the defensive end that's getting mm. some notoriety. This is is this unprecedented that someone may be playing as a freshman? Uh, he will play. He will play. He, is, may, he is a big boy. Tell me a little um, bit about this young man. And again, I don't want to overhype because no, this I don't is a want to overhype because he's yeah. he's going to open up against Eds and Ignatius, and he's going to play luck, like a freshman. <laughs> he's going to play like a freshman, and I get that. And um, you know. 
six five and he's two forty five and he moves and he plays hard and even more important than that he's a really good kid he really i mean he 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 wants to do well he cares he's good to people he's a really exceptional leader he his guy's the limit for him he you know he stay healthy and keep developing he's he's got special abilities you know kind of like the kid who just went to ohio state you know he's in that that type of you know, he plays well, he'll end up at Ohio State. And, I mean, he's he's a special talent. Last name is Vernon. Vernon. Yeah. Brennan Vernon. So yep. keep, keep your, um, remember that name. And you mentioned a young kid who just went to Ohio State. I see Noah. Noah Potter got his, you know. Yeah, they the, both the, did the, this they, week. They, was they, their black yeah, stripe? Yeah, their black that stripe. That's kind of um, cool. It was cool. Uh, I think Ryan got it, what, Monday? removed and then no what was yesterday thursday so it was kind of cool so all right yeah that way boys you know <laughs> went out there and got their stripe off so you know we're proud of what they're doing and proud of what nick's doing and, and all the guys we've got a boatload of kids playing college football and that's fun and you know that will be one thing i really will enjoy going to do um getting to go see that because i don't get to see a lot of games yeah um at least until the very end so to, to go see a little bit more of that i will enjoy that part of it and also, you have to learn how to kind of help these young people comb through the in, the attention that they're getting from colleges as it ramps up from sophomore year to junior year. How has that changed over the years in terms of how they come at you? Social media is a big thing. How do you it's, deal with it? it's different from that standpoint. And, you know, they're, they're, here they're still kids. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to, you know, they... They still do boy things, so you gotta you gotta keep them in mind. But they're really well raised at home, and so we haven't had a lot of that. But you know, you gotta talk about it. You gotta teach them, and you know, hopefully, as a coach, you use your phone the right way. You know, when you follow on Twitter and or whatever, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, all those things are now. <laughs> I try to do the best I can, but you know, if you do it right, they see how you do it right. You you don't, you know then they're going to see it. And a lot of habits come from how, you know, what kind of role models they follow and what kind of people they're looking up to. And, you know, so if I do it right, then I, I think they tend to see how to do it. And uh, that's what coach is talking about, you know, and, and we do talk about those things and try to help them along those ways. And there's just so many things that they're dealing with nowadays. I, I just, I just think, you know, 20, 25 years ago, it was a whole different animal sure. for what kids, you know, were a, what was coming upon each right. young person and nowadays you've got to play so many different roles in order to help them kind of navigate this world there's so much pressure out there there's scrutiny yep. there's peer pressure amongst each other um and then there's the x's and o's you yeah. know how do you deal with it all so you got a lot i mean and and, and we we try to do a lot in the off season we spend a lot of time we read uh, as, as a team we read a book and then we discuss that book every week and we discuss it, topics of it each month. And, and we carry that. Like this year we did chop wood, carry water. And that's about the process of becoming great and, and things you need to do. And, you know, so we really, um, our strength coach puts a big part of that in uh, Jordan Wilcox into our strength program. So mm-hmm. we, we have the kids five days a week all year long. So, you know, we really try to adapt that into their, into their lives and how they need to do in football, outside of football. And, you know, everything we talk about in, in this program is about life, not just Friday nights. Those are, what, 5, 10, 15, hopefully, weeks of the of yep. the year out of 52. You know, so depending on how much they play. So, you know, we really talk and 
making them and down the road and in their life and how they do it and so that's really what we focus on more than the the game day part of it so how exciting is it to go into this campaign knowing that you've been you've been able to take Metter right to the doorstep and you've got a very good team and you have the makings of an outstanding team so how exciting is it just to look forward to you know saint ed's Hello. Right off the bat. Week, week one, <laughs> less than two weeks from uh, as we sit here in your I don't know how Coach office. Lombardo talked me into that game. <laughs> <laughs> what was that conversation like? <laughs> Come on, Trip. No, he's a good guy. We, we, it should be played, and you know those games should be played. Those yeah. games should be played for Northeast Ohio. Um, nobody wants to see a team that's way better than who, who wants to go see that. So you want to see Ed's Ignatius, Ed's Mentor, Ed's you know, you know. Ignatius Benner, all you know, Hoban. You know, you want to see those big games because that's what Northeast Ohio deserves. Great football town, and they want to see the big games. and And I like being part of those, and and it, and it's fun, and 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 that's what you want. And you know, we look forward to this year. We've got a great group of kids, and um, you know, but you know, learned long ago, you got to stay healthy in this game, or else you go from really good to really average quick. You know, they kind of killed us a little bit last year. We lost a bunch of guys down to, at the end, and. Yeah, you got to stay healthy along the way, and and uh, and hope everything you, you keep getting better. So, how are you dealing with these final, you know, final first practice, final first game of the year? You know, that, that everybody's kind of pointing that stuff out. Yeah, they just, are, and, um, and I am too. I, I said I, I was very excited about the final equipment pass out day and the picture <laughs> day because I don't like either of those days. But uh, you know, the biggest part, I know the biggest part I'll miss is the relationship I have with sitting in here in this office with the coaches and getting to talk to you guys and and being around the kids. And, and that I'll miss the most um, of any any part of it. And But, um, you know, I'm at a good place with it and, and, and looking forward to this season. Best of luck to you, Coach. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. Please unpack this whole life journey for me, if you can, Mac. You played a short time in the National Football League. What was that like, and how did that shape you for what you're doing today? Well, you know, being able to play in the NFL was a lifelong dream. Um, Probably at the age of four, when I used to watch uh, Archie Griffin play for Ohio State, you know, that's when that football bug took a hold of me. And, um, you know, like a lot of young kids, you know, I grew up in West Akron, um, just like any other kid. But... You know, I was a tall, awkward, uncoordinated kid, you know, throughout my elementary years. And I met a coach probably in seventh grade, Coach Jim Sheely, who uh, took me under his wing. And, and you know, slowly but surely, um, I started figuring out how my body works. And, and you know, I've been 6'3 since uh, eighth grade. You so uh, everyone thought I was going to be a basketball player at that time. But I, I just uh, fell in love with working out. Uh, then I attended Firestone High School, and, you know, we had an okay uh, weightlifting program, but me and two uh, very good friends of mine, we joined a place called Bodybuilders Incorporated in Akron, Ohio, and we were just three 16-, 17-year-old kids, had no idea of what we were doing. <laughs> we're going in this gym, and, I mean, there was literally bodybuilders and, and just powerlifters, um, and we were just doing the best we could to uh, try to get our bodies prepared uh, to play high school football. Um, 
bringing it forward to today, there were some, some years ago when I have twin boys, and uh, when they were like eight or nine years old, I was coaching um, their rec basketball team, and I asked a guy, would he be interested in training my, my sons? And More uh, sports-specific, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and just the amount of money that he wanted to charge was uh, more than what I was willing to pay, and, and I decided to go back and get my certifications, and I talked to some of the uh, better trainers in the area, uh, like Tim Robertson, for mm-hmm. example, and uh, a few other guys that, that were um, well-known in the area, and I decided to get into it myself and just train kids that couldn't afford it so oh, okay. my first five or six years i never charged the kid i was just doing it um, because i wanted kids to get access to the right training um which you kind of didn't have right which, exactly which i didn't have and um slowly but surely um it just grew into a full-fledged business so now we train um professional athletes college athletes high school uh, all the way down to elementary age kids. Um, I have a guy that helps me now, Andre Cliff, who's a Euclid High graduate. Andre, um, you know, in high school had, had some tough times, but I always made a promise to him if he'd just stick with it and uh, go to college. He went to college, graduated from Urbana, got a degree in exercise science, and he now coaches with me at Cleveland Heights. He's our strength and conditioning coach. But here at, at, at uh, NEL Sports Plan, he also helps me. So he's training a group of guys on the turf right now. So it's come full circle now because now what I'm trying to do is get the kids that I coach and train to, to work with the younger guys. Um, my son, Lyndon uh, Stevens, who uh, is in his second year with Denver Broncos, he'll be home after they're in camp right now. He'll be home in a couple of weeks. He just knows when he comes home, he's expected to work with the younger guys, and they look forward to it. So it's kind of a pay-it-forward thing, and and uh, he's gained a lot of expertise, not just training here up through the ranks, but obviously being a pro for a couple of years. Well, he thinks he can help these guys. Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny. He and I had a conversation last night, and um, a lot of the things that I do with the kids right now are things that I did with Lyndon. But Lyndon would always tell me, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, and it was just hard because I was just Dad. And now that he's in the uh, NFL, it's funny because almost every night we have a conversation, he'll tell me about practice or what they did in the weight room or what they did to help him with uh, their speed. And he'll go, you know what, Dad, we did exactly the same things we did at the sports plan or <laughs> or when we were uh, when you were coaching me at Euclid, some of the same drills. So you know, it's just funny, um, you know, for him to say that. And, but I always share that uh, with the kids that I train. That, uh, but the way I put it to them is, the drills that you guys are doing are the same drills that Lyndon grew up doing. So um, you know, it's just. And, but it's good for the kids to yeah. to be able to relate to Lyndon because they've watched him. Um, over the years, trained here and when he played at Cincinnati. And uh, so they, they like to pick his brain and, and uh, you know, it, it motivates the, uh, the guys that we train now and just gives them some inspiration. Well, Mac, you had a couple of years in the league. So how did that help you, um, you know, to, to deal with helping your son get to the National Football League? 
Yeah, you know, one thing, um, I was really into into um, being in the best condition possible. Okay. Um, so you I, win the workout guy. You're oh, absolutely. Win the workout guy. You know, I tell my son, you know, I, I play with the New York Jets, Minnesota Vikings, and uh, I play with a guy that you're familiar with, Herschel Walker. Sure. And when I was in high school, I remember reading the Sports Illustrated article that talked about the hundreds of push-ups and thousands of sit-ups and run the and all, hills right and, and all the things that he did and the irony is my second year in nfl uh, i end up with the minnesota vikings and we were matched with uh, workout partners and usually an offensive guy was matched with a defensive guy well my guy happened Herschel. to be herschel walker and um so I made it up in my mind that I said, well, if nothing else, I'm not going to let this guy outwork me in the weight room. Even though he was Herschel right. freaking Right. I mean, he, he, yeah, he <laughs> was uh, an unbelievable football player. But I can honestly say we would do workouts, and, and I had to get used to doing upside-down push-ups against the wall and things like huh. that. Um, I had a hard time matching him when it came to that. But in terms of just lifting and, and, and the conditioning, um, on the field um, that I could do. So, um, you know, and, and that's the message I, I try to teach not only my high school players, but, but obviously my son, Lyndon, mm-hmm. is that, yeah, there may be guys that are more talented, but never let someone outwork you. You know, you can control that. So, um, and, I, and I just believe in teaching uh, these young, young guys that, you know, it's a mindset. And a lot of my training centers not only on the physical but the mental aspect of, of um, helping these these well, young guys and young ladies uh, take that next step that will help them get to the next level. What did you learn from Herschel? I mean, this guy was a legendary figure, I'm sure, by the time you were exposed to him. And it was a short period of time. Yeah. The, had to have had an imprint. Yeah, the biggest thing was, you know, you see guys like a Herschel Walker. So I've had the opportunity when I was playing back then uh, to work out with Herschel Walker, Deion Sanders, and Reggie White. And the one common thing amongst those three guys was that they worked as hard as anyone I've ever seen. And they had the talent. Right. You know, my 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 year with uh, the Vikings, you know, John Randall was a rookie yeah. who's now Hall a Hall of Famer. Famer. Yeah. You know, uh, Chris Dolman was a defensive end. Keith Millard, Al Noga, Henry Thomas, um, you know, Mike Merriweather. Um, you know, those were guys that were all pro type players but again the common theme was uh, they worked their tails off and and they had they did the extra things you know I remember Chris Carter uh, who was with the Vikings at the same at that time uh, after practice would uh, you know would catch 500 to a thousand footballs every day after practice you know and then you you look at how he played the game and, and, you know, he would make the spectacular catches, but he, yes, he was talented. And there's no doubt about mm-hmm. it, but he also worked at it. Wow. 500 to 1,000 balls after practice. Uh, it, 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 was, it was unbelievable to watch that work ethic uh, in play every day. But, but, but it makes sense why those guys are Hall of Famers and why they're all pros, all pro players. So. Wow. 
that's very impressive impressive and i could see where you are you're touched by it you already had your great work ethic it that was instilled in you and you kind of fortify that as you got older you get to the pros and you're exposed to individuals is that what you have to teach the young people is that you do your work don't worry about anybody else just do you the best way that you can do you Yes, you know, and especially in this day and age with social media and the kids have so much access to video and, and they see some of the spectacular movements that some of these athletes make and they just think they're supposed to do that, but they don't understand the amount of repetition that goes into becoming a great uh, athlete. Um, you know, I think about a guy like LeBron James, for example, from a basketball standpoint. You know, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and I remember watching him play for the South Rangers in Pee Wee football. But I also remember one day being or having the opportunity to watch him in the gym at St. Vincent St. Mary put put up hundreds of shots, you know, and just work on ball handling drills. And, and you know, again, people just see the NBA game, the finished product, but they don't see the work behind the scenes when, you know, in these uh, you know, bent over, dripping in sweat, and hardly can move after a two or three hour workout. Well, you've had some pretty high profile recruits, as it were, go through the halls at uh, Cleveland Heights. You mentioned earlier uh, Jalen Harris, now with the Buckeyes, Tyreek Smith with the Buckeyes. Is there a different mindset you have to have as a coach and as a mentor to individuals that are such high achievers, or can you can you cookie cut this stuff? Well, you know, the, the thing I do uh, that I did with, you know, Tyreek and, and Jalen was uh, I always put higher expectations on them. And, and the, the message I gave them was you can't be like your typical 17-year-old kid or your typical 18-year-old kid because you're a national recruit. and um, All the big-name coaches are walking into this facility it, it, to see. Yes, and, and, you know, these coaches are – um, you know, flying from the West Coast, flying from, you know, schools from down south, from the East Coast to, to, to come watch you work out, to come watch you play. So you can't you can't be typical. And, you know, every day I preach mindset because, you know, it's like even with my son, physically, I told Lyndon when he goes to the NFL, you're going to be one of the faster, uh, fastest defensive backs. You're going to be one of the strongest. But. It's your approach mentally that's going to dictate whether or not you have a short career or a long career. Um, and Lyndon, you know, he found out really quick, you know, I mean, he's a 4-3 guy and he can probably, you know, I think he's 195 pounds, bench press 350 twice. Um, but he's finding out film study and, and self-motivation and uh, knowing how to take care of your body and doing all of, all of the little things so that the big things happen is key to, to uh, uh, ultimate success. Did you find that the Tyreeks and the Jalens listened to someone such as yourself a little bit more because of your past? Or was do you feel it was your approach towards these young gentlemen that got them to be motivated and high achievers? Well, I think uh, obviously my background being a, a former Big Ten player and, and having uh, you know a short stint in the NFL played a part. But I think ultimately, you know, when you're dealing with, with young people, especially, you know, I, I coached at Glenville for a couple of years with, with Coach Gann and 
you know, one thing I, I uh, learned in that experience, as well as when I coached Euclid and a few other places, mm-hmm. is that when, when you love up a kid and you show that you really care, you know, these kids will run through a wall for you. Um, and yes, you got to teach them the fundamentals and the techniques of the game, but ultimately it's about investing into the whole person. Um, you know, at Cleveland Heights, you know, the, the philosophy that, that I've implemented in, in the football program is, is, is threefold. Number one, uh, we believe in, in academic excellence. And academic excellence is something different for every kid. We have a young man right there who's a 4.62 GPA student. But he knows if he comes or if his progress reports any week shows that he's got to be, it's not acceptable. Now, I got some kids that might have a 2.8 GPA. Now, if they get a B in a class A, I, I might do a cartwheel. <laughs> uh, but it, but when you know your kids, um, then you can uh, define what academic excellence is for each kid. Secondly, it's just social responsibility. I expect them to behave a certain way in the hallways, in the classroom. I don't want mom or dad telling me that they can't practice because they didn't take out the trash. Um, they are to carry themselves a certain way when they're in the community. Sure. Uh, they're expected to <clears throat> reach back to the younger kids and, and, and um, you know, work the youth camps or, or, you know, just speak good things into the younger kids' uh, lives. And then, you know, lastly, from an athletic standpoint, it's just effort. You know, I tell the kids, just give me effort. Not everyone's going to be Jalen Harris. Not everyone's going to be Tyreek Smith. But everyone can give... 100% effort. And if you do those uh, three things, we, we call it our blueprint. If you follow that blueprint, good things will happen for you in life, not only on a football field, but in life. And, and that's sort of what I've built my own life around. You know, I, I you know, growing up in Akron and, and watching my dad work three jobs and, you know, knowing his background, growing up in Alabama, one of 14 kids. I mean, he grew up dirt poor and he always said, you have no reason not to be successful in life because you have access to quality education, which I did. Um, and you can work hard. <laughs> There's no reason you can't work hard. And, you know, and then on the other hand, you know, it was my mom who pushed the sports on me. And she was the one that she kept me busy because I was a very hyperactive kid. And, um, you know, she just wanted to make sure my time was occupied in a positive way. So. Um, you know, participating in sports and then, you know, the whole workout aspect, I just fell in love with um, controlling how I can shape myself physically and mentally. So those are the things that I just try to teach the the people that I train, the people that I coach. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your dad, uh, life, uh, you know, growing up in Alabama, one of many, many children. Did, uh, were you born down there and brought up here or were you born, born up this way? No, I was, I was born in Akron, Ohio. Um, my dad was born in a small town called Evergreen, Alabama. Whereabouts in Alabama is uh, that? That's um, not too far from Montgomery. Okay. Um, just outside of Montgomery, but, but um, nothing but trees and fields. <laughs> um, True country. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, his dad built the house that they lived in, which was really nothing more than a shack. So um, I've had, you know, opportunity to go down there over the years. So for me, <clears throat> there's no reason not to 
do all, I mean, I lead a very busy schedule, but there's no reason that I can't do it knowing what my dad grew up in and knowing what he did to make sure myself, my brother and sister uh, lived a, a pretty good life as well. Well, you have that great work ethic. I'm sure a lot of that does stem from, you know, how he, how your parents, how you were raised, and then you're doing the same with, with your sons and with your with your family. Um, you were talking a bit about Tyreek and about Jalen. Let's go back to the Tyreek incident a couple of years ago mm-hmm. because I think you want your athletes to be their own person. And I think when he did that little protest, that was a young man giving voice to something that was deep inside of him, wasn't it? And we can tell our listeners it was he had he wore a shirt to a camp that said, I hope I'm not killed because I'm black today or Correct. some words to that effect. Correct. And take us back to that situation. And I'm sure that's an, an aspect of a young man using his voice. Yes, Tyreek. Well, first of all, he comes from a great family. Right. Uh, Randy and Michelle Smith, tremendous people. And uh, I'll never forget that day because we were at a camp at Ohio State. There were eight or nine hundred kids at that camp, and uh, and Tyreke, he does it there, right? And Tyreek uh, wears the shirt there. I didn't necessarily have a problem with it because I believe, um, and, and Tyreek knew that, you know, there's consequences to every action, good or bad, and you know, it was something that he believed in, and it was a hotbed topic. Uh, in the country, especially at that time. Mm-hmm. And he dealt with it. But I remember having a conversation with Tyreek, and I never said you shouldn't have worn it or you should have worn it. All that I told him was that moving forward, just make sure you lead your you lead by example, which yeah. I knew he would. Um, and that's just sort of the way I try to carry myself. You know, I, I have some strong opinions about, you know, various matters that are going on in the country right now. Sure. But I guess the way I choose to address a, a, a lot of the things that I feel strongly about is making sure uh, I carry myself in a dignified way that so that when the young people that I'm coaching or training, you know, when they look at Coach Mack, they know uh, I, I'm just trying to, to, to live a good, good and decent life. You know, I don't claim to be perfect, but uh, I do try to carry myself in a way that... Um, uh, contributes in a positive way to, to the society that we live in. Well, there are pitfalls to celebrity, and I think we saw that with the situation with uh, Kareem Hunt, who's with the Cleveland Browns now. He's going to be serving a suspension. He came and spoke to your team, and I know he's doing that on a somewhat regular basis. In, in essence, what was his message, and do you think your kids got something from that? Well, I will say this about <clears throat> Kareem's uh, uh, speaking presentation at Cleveland Heights. It was one of the um, best speaking engagements I've ever seen before the Cleveland Heights football program in that he touched on a lot of things that, I mean, I've known Kareem since he was in fourth or fifth grade. He used to work out with me, and, and, and he talked about that, and he told the kids to uh, make sure they use myself and our coaching staff as a resource. Uh, Kareem talked about making a mistake, you know, and, and and knowing that he has to learn from this mistake and not re- repeat the same thing. Um, you know, Kareem owned up to um, even going back to some things back in high school that he talked about. He talked about having a learning disability, but having the courage to ask for help uh, in high school, having the courage to ask for help when he was at the University of Toledo. 
And but what what was impressive was he, he talked to the kids about having earned a degree in criminal justice, um, despite having a learning disability. That's and, pretty um, unique. Yeah, yes, it, it's very unique, and and you know that's a side that doesn't get talked about, um, unfortunately, because of the yeah. incident that occurred. But I can tell you that is a um, you know a young man that that made an unfortunate mistake. Um, and I and I've I've told various people I don't there's nothing that I can say to justify it. I, I was contacted by some national media outlets and I refused to do any interviews about uh, Kareem coming to Cleveland Heights just because I I, I felt like they just wanted to put a, a complete negative spin on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I just looked at it as. He made an unbelievable impact on, on those young men on that day. So he really turned what was a very uh, difficult situation, unfortunate, probably use every adjective that you want, but he's making it a positive for not just himself, but if he can raise up some kids in the process or enlighten some kids, then that's part of life. Right, right. And Kareem, you know, Kareem talked to the kids about... Um, when I first started training some kids, and he was one of the first guys, him and uh, one of his best friends, and uh, we were training at Osborne Park in Willoughby. Okay. Yeah, and I would open my trunk, and they would grab the equipment, and we would just go in the grass and, 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 and work. And, you know, and Kareem just talked about, even back then, having a, a work ethic that was a little bit different from some of his peers. Um, you know, but but, but I'll, I'll say this about Kareem. He um, he really is a humble young young man. Uh, I'm, I'm certain he's learned from um, not only the incident that's been in the news, but just, you know, other things over the years. And I think, yes, he's going to be a great football player for the Cleveland Browns, but I think more importantly, he's going to be um, something that, or he's going to be a person that young people in the Cleveland area are going to look to and say, wow, this guy overcame a lot. He, he, he cleaned up, cleaned himself up, and look at what he's doing for, for the Cleveland community now. Could be one of the ultimate success stories after what many people had figured was a dead end after that situation, that he was done. He's not going to play football again. Yeah, you know, the thing is, you know, we all make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes now. Some mistakes are, are, uh, are um, at a more higher degree, so to speak. But I, I just truly believe he will move forward. And, um, you know, in the end, he's going to be able to impact a lot of young people in a positive way. Mac, I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good stuff. I certainly appreciate you guys listening to this episode and keep in mind, we'll probably also re-release a couple of other interviews we've had within the first 41 episodes of Tellich Talks. Just taking a little bit of a break and getting those juices ready for the next stint of this podcast. So appreciate you listening once again. We'll see you the next time on Tellich Talks. Keep it uh, simple. Okay, Rafa, uh, first of all, welcome to the program, and thanks very much for letting me kind of unpack your story. I think you have a very interesting one. You grew up in El Salvador. Correct. 
and then you came to the United States when you were 16. Take me back to El Salvador, let's say the years prior to the Civil War. That was when you were about 11, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, I was, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Sure. It's, you know, my, my years in El Salvador are, I get the way I can describe, I'm the youngest one of four. Okay. So to me, I, w- I always consider myself one of the f- so many that got caught in the middle of the conflict. Okay. You know, there's always, when there's a war, there's always, there's not just one side that is good and one side that is bad. They're all fighting for something that they believe is what they think they want. So I, I don't think it was, you know, a, a good side or a bad side. It's just that there were a lot of people caught in the middle of the conflict. And my parents and my family, I believe, was one of the thousands. And I remember my oldest brother, Carlos, is six years older than me, when he was like in his 15, you know, becoming a teenager, becoming yeah. a, he used to go out and there were parties back home. And this is, this is like late 70s when the conflict hasn't really expl- exploded. And then when I got to that age, my question was to my parents was always, you know, how come, how come Carlos was always going to the disco and going to parties? And how come I can? You know, at that age, you don't understand. And my parents, thank God, were very strict about us just, I mean, and that's why that part of my life into the conflict, the last four or five years of my life there, I hated it because my parents were so strict that we would go in the morning to school. And we would, my, parents, my father would pick us up from school, we'd come back home, and then we'd just, we would just be in, in the house. We weren't allowed to go out. If we played, we played little soccer in, in the street in front of the house. But Safety. it wasn't really... Safety concerns. Safety, yeah. And, you know, we, we had friends whose parents weren't as strict as my parents were. So it was kind of it's hard yeah. when you're growing up <laughs> to understand, even though now you look back and say, thank God, I think I'm still alive because... My because parents, my parents were that way, so you know. And then it, it's really not too many joyful memories really? because of that. Because I think when I came to New York, I, I I believe I I felt that freedom, I felt that that way of just being able to go anywhere. Because the the war became more like the wrong place at the wrong time. Gotcha. It wasn't really that I was mixed up with the wrong people or anything. It was that you could be having a coffee. But next to you, the table next to you, there was a guy that the guerrillas were looking for, or, or it was a guy that really? wasn't the guerrilla that the military was looking for. And unfortunately, they didn't really go in and ask questions and pick one guy up. You know, there was a lot of a lot of times where they would just go in and shoot around, or a bomb exploded. So it was it was more the case of the wrong place at the wrong time. And my parents were very aware of that. And you know they didn't want us anywhere near. So you were you were then 16 then when you came I, to yeah was I was, that, was I was that a 15 yeah the, was that a result of we have to get our children yes. we left hell we, away from yeah. here my parents made the sacrifice to get us out of El Salvador because of the conflict my my oldest brother graduated high school and came here most of the for the the biggest reason I think was during during those conflicts at the universities is where where most of the problems begin or the revolutions, you know, sure. the, so my parents didn't want us to be part of that. Okay. So my oldest brother came in 1980. That's Carlos. Carlos, yes. And then my sister came to finish high school here because she had some issues with the school that she was going to. She was going to Catholic school and she was the best student in the, in the class, but the, na- the nuns 
used to take the kids to go feed the gorillas in the mountains. Oh, okay. And my father wanted no part of it. My father was like, listen, I'll give you money, I'll give you food, but my daughter, don't, I don't want my Keep daughter around. anywhere near that. So they, she got kicked, she got expelled from school. Wow. So they just said, you know what, just, just go to my, my, we have two aunts here, thank God, my aunt Anna and Nora that were living here, working here, and we, she came to live with one of them, and then my, my brother Benjamin graduated high school, who was a year older than me, and came. So when I was the only one there, he was, you know, I was, I, I remember vividly, I was sitting at a table just like the one we're sitting here, and my father came in and said, hey, you're leaving Wednesday. <laughs> You had no notice. I was about to start my senior year there. And I was like, okay. But thank God I was young and stupid. I always say that because I didn't even think of anything other than I'm going to New York to... What were your thoughts of... Were you more worried, or not worried, but you were more kind of relieved that you're getting away from a stressful situation? Or were you more stressed by going to... You're going to another country. To be honest with you, I wasn't stressed about anything. That's how young and stupid I was. You're young and stupid. Yeah, I, I was... The war didn't bother me until later when I became an adult and I realized how much it had affected my growing up. I got you. Okay. But during the time, you deal with it. You, you, yeah. you deal with the fact, and that is the sad part, I think, about those conflicts, that they become normal, they become a part of life. We'll Just be playing baseball. Another day. In a sandlot, and also so on, it's like a couple of bullets go off and everybody hit the floor. and. Five minutes later, you're playing baseball again. You know, it's gone. So it, it, that's yeah. the sad part, I believe, of, of of that kind of conflict, that it becomes a part of the daily life. You're kind of immune to you it. You get it. You become immune to it, exactly. And then it's not normal. It, it's a new normal. It's, yeah. So it, it, that's the part that I, you re, I realized once I grew up and became, you know, became an adult, that it, was, it wasn't a, a, absolutely a, not, a, not a fun time. So you came to you came to the states. You were in uh, New York, yes. Long Island, or Long Island, yes. Long Island. And you Long stayed Island. with your aunt. Yes. And then you you graduate. You you you're a new student there. You go. You you enroll at Boston University. Yes. And the interesting part of your story is that you're doing nothing that's even close to what you studied for. <laughs> you studied to be a mechanical engineer, no? Yes. Okay. I actually have a degree in mechanical engineering with a specialization in machine design. Okay. And I. I'm, again, I'm the youngest one of four. Of I'm the youngest one of three other very, very good students. Are your students. siblings doing what they studied? Yeah, are your siblings doing what they yes. studied for? So yes. you're the one All that kind of went outside uh, the box. I always been the... I, you know what I learned the other day? I, I no longer say the black sheep. I, I, I always been the psychedelic sheep. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking for the color in yeah. life, right? <laughs> you want, that's so, why you're the mayor. Yeah, right? So I... I was, again, I'm lucky I'm the youngest one because when my oldest brother Carlos came, he really had to figure it out all by himself. Gotcha. And then my sister and then my other brother Benjamin. So when I came, they kind of knew the road. So I knew I even had choices to apply to different schools and everything okay. like that. So I was lucky in that, in that regard that I, and again, luck that I didn't come to realize. <laughs> Later in life, but uh, at the time. Well, what appealed I, to you about mechanical the, engineering? What was it? I, the, I was good in numbers. I was good with numbers. I was okay. good with science. I was good. I enjoy. I enjoy the you know the the, the math and all that. So okay. it's like, and I, I really and to be. If I had told my dad I was gonna go to school, and pay at the time eighteen thousand dollars a year at Boston University, wow. and I was gonna have an undeclared, like he would have. 
he would have never understood that. Yeah, he wanted. Like I, I, I could, I should have gone to deliver a large and try to figure yeah. out what I was good at, and then maybe go, and then maybe economics, maybe finance. I don't know. But yeah, that so, would have, that would have never fly. <laughs> you're dad. like you're like the high school football star that has to declare a school. Yeah. And say I'm going to Ohio State yeah. University, and then everybody can everybody can breathe. Yeah. And then when you get to that age, uh, senior year, you go eh, maybe not Ohio State, maybe something else. Yeah. Uh, so engineering was the thing, and and I I I, I entered in this program at Boston University, and it was fun. I didn't have the habits for it. But I made it through. You know, it was really long. It was just, you know, the the lab reports and the five calculus classes and six physics and and all these different things. There were classes that I literally went in and came out, and I don't think I learned a thing. But I wasn't the only one. It was like, but you know, so I graduated and have my mechanical engineering degree. And my biggest my biggest um, purpose was at that time to, to kind of become independent. My brother Carlos at the time had already, was already working, gotcha. and he was helping. He helped, he's helped me a lot through this day, and you know I just wanted to kind of cut the cord. Okay. So nobody once told me throughout my whole time that the job that I will be seeking were for pure citizens only because I wanted to work with jet engines, I wanted to work with McDonnell Douglas or with, with So there Boeing was a there was a, a because a of national security. For so you could not I couldn't because, because I was only I was only a permanent resident at the time. Ah, I only had my green card. Oh gotcha. And I have um, like a year and a half to go before I could apply. There's like a five year period that you have to be a resident of the US in order to apply for your And you didn't have the patience to wait for that because you wanted well, to get on no, the I, I, I need to I needed to work. You need to I work. Sure. I, need, I needed to get a job. Gotcha. And 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 so I tried to and, and I was trying to work as an engineer. Gotcha. So that didn't work. And the next step was to join the Navy. Back home I wanted to join the army. And I even went without my parents knowing I went to the to the, to the uh, mission exam. And my mom was like, you know, over my dead body, you're, you're going <laughs> to you're be joining this conflict. <laughs> you know, this is not like... We're getting you away from this. Because back there, yeah, exactly. We, we, haven't you noticed that the other three siblings are out of here? So, but that was, I mean, again, back in the day, me trying to, trying to do something about it, I wanted to join the, the army, which is, God bless my mom, she was absolutely right. But I, I always had that drawing towards the military. So, you know, I figured the Navy, I'm gonna go in. So I go to the recruiters and <laughs> the guy says, you know, listen, I can't give you officer training school because you're not a citizen. So you have to enlist. So here I am enlisting with a four year degree in, in engineering and everything. But I'm like, you know, hey, let's do it. So I go take the exam, I pass it and everything again. And on my way, to sign the contract, I stopped at my friend's house who had enlisted out of high school okay. and had just come back from the original Gulf War. And in my young, dumb mind, I'm thinking I'm going to go by his house and he's going to give me tips on how I'm going to get through inside, you know? And he's telling you, run <laughs> away from this. Well, he gave me the best advice that, at that time that I had received. He said, listen, I explained to him you know, my situation and he said, Rafa, Whatever you do, 
do not sign that paper unless it says in the paper that they will give you official training school when you get your citizenship. Ah. Don't think that because it's the U.S. government and the U.S. Navy, they're going to do it. You go, and he, and he, he, the, this is the good thing. He said to me, the guy, the recruiter is going to tell you, don't worry, Rafa, just, just, you call me when you're there, you call me when you get your papers, and, and, uh, and, and we'll get you there. He goes, and he won't even be in that desk like two months from now. Yeah. So forget about a year and a half. You, you wouldn't even know where to find him. So, don't if do he, this. so I went there and, and I said, listen, can we put it? He goes, don't worry about it. You call me. When you get your papers, you call me. I was like, okay, thanks. No. <laughs> so I went back home and I just didn't, again, I wanted to become an adult, I guess. So somehow, I don't know exactly how I got, but I went to this interview with Canada Dry Bottling Company <laughs> in New York. Went to the interview. And I got to the point where, you know, I was living in Manhattan with my roommate from college whose aunt was going into a nursing home. So we were taking care of her apartment in 58th and 5th Avenue. We were living in... <laughs> and I just got so... We were watching the war, the Gulf War, and, and I, like we would take turns and like we had a whole board of like where the troops were and I would sleep and he would look he would look into the thing he was just like really not doing nothing but wow. watching you know back in the day I think it was the first war that yeah. was televised live it was, so, yeah, so we were really we were really into that but I got tired of it so I went home I went back to El Salvador oh, wow. without not knowing what, what I was going to do with myself and when I was there my brother Carlos called me and said, because I had left his number as a contact, and he said, hey, they called from Canada Dry that you got the job. Whoa. So I'm like, Oof, I'm back. <laughs> What'd you do there? So you were a sales guy? I got $18,000 a year plus a car with gas. And that to me was... Heaven, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and all I had to... They, were, they had just gotten the rights to distribute bottles and James wine coolers. So I remember my first job was selling, buy 10 cases, get one free, up and down the South Bronx, in all the bodegas, all, little, all, the, little all stores, the bodegas bodega, and yeah, all yeah. the supermarkets, yeah. the Wabans and the Seamar and the Sea Towns and the MetLife and all that. And that was my first job. And I got good at it. You know, they, they, the Canada Dye Bottling Company, the, the distributor also had the rights to distribute Coors Beer. Coors Beer, mm, baby. And so I was, I eventually moved into an area where I was selling bows and I was really good at it. I became a, a, a district sales manager and then I moved to the brewery. Okay. And I was managing the national account that was managing Yankee Stadium, you know, the bar outside, Stan's Bar. And we did, so I was part of the, of the group that beat when, when Coors Light came to the East Coast. Gotcha. Yeah, that was a big deal. Back when it was just Bob Weiser and Bob Light. When it was just in Colorado, it was kind of like a sacred thing. Of, yeah. Can you get a hold of? Some well, I think Miss, for Miss, me? the Mississippi River was yeah, the, was the like border. The yeah. And everybody knew the banquet beer, you know, that that yellow yeah. can. Yes. But nobody could get it over here, so they finally. You were the guy. You, well, I was part <laughs> of it, and and but you know what? I, I was I was good at sales. I was I got into Yankee Stadium where we weren't we weren't there before. I got into Stan's Bar and we, we were doing uh, Madison Square Garden. We had all. Wow. There was a there was a new there was a new um, sports bar that opened in Times Square, and I went in there and they had 
the hood of the Budweiser NASCAR car, which I don't think it was it was Dale Earnhardt at the time. I don't forget okay. who it was, but so I went to the manager and I said, "Listen, how about I bring you the sh- the whole shell of the of the Cal Petty car, which was driving the course car at the time." So I remember we we it was a big thing because it was even on the paper when the whole the whole Cal Petty car the shell of it big deal and they hang they hang it up on the roof and Peter Coors came to the bar to see it. so it was good I mean I was but I was you got to a point where I was really good at it but I wasn't really enjoying myself maybe I was burning the candle on both ends because I had to be in the morning to make sure my stuff went out and so you did was your work entertaining. Maybe drove a couple of times when I shouldn't have back in the day, and and one morning I didn't want to go to work, so I just you know I told my boss I said, how long how long do you need and I'm out. Okay. So and so you you're at that point where you you want to switch, and the date October fifteenth nineteen eighty eight is significant. That's the date when Kirk Gibson hit that hit the <laughs> yes. home run. You had heard that, so how old were you then? You were like nineteen twelve. You're in college. 1998? No, I'm out of college. It's 88. 88, yeah. I'm 88, I'm in college. I remember that clearly. So you heard that call. Something in that resonated with you? Ah, a lot. You know, it, again, I always had, I was always the sports person in my, yeah. in my, in my, in my family. I play sports. I love sports. I, I follow my father up and down on the weekend when he played, even when he was retired. And, and, and I was in college and I remember Jack Buck. Jack Buck had the call. He had the call. I don't know. Don't get me. Don't don't ask me why I was listening to the radio instead of watching it on TV. But I always had that thing about watching on TV and listening on the radio, because I like the more the painted stuff yeah, as they opposed to the, the conversation, yeah. you know. And the thing that came to my mind, and to me, I didn't really, you know, comment it on anybody. And it's not something that I was like, I want to do that right away, but. I was like, man, that has to be the best feeling in the world. Like, to have that moment. And the way he said it, like, it sounded so real. Like, I can't believe what I just saw. And that was what I was feeling, but I wasn't pressing it, you know? I couldn't believe that Kirk Gibson just went one leg. Yep. <laughs> just off hit it off of Dennis Eckersley. Yep. And Canseco didn't even move. He just, he just, like, he just looked up and looked. So that moment... Later on in life, I, I, I always had that with me. It was in the back of your head. It was in the back of my head. But, but you're that, just doing you. You're still doing yeah, your sales. That feeling, I'm it. doing the thing. I'm watching TV. I'm at Yankee Stadium. I have Madison Square Garden. I'm doing Chase Stadium. I'm, I'm involved in sports. Yeah. But I'm doing sales. Gotcha. And I wish I could tell you that I quit with a plan, but I didn't. Just, Which is probably makes the story even better that you just did it. <laughs> I, just, right? I just couldn't go to have to go to work. I've never been that kind of person that that does something because, because so you just I have to. So what was the first job? Uh, doing play by play for some. Well, yes. So I, you went to broadcast school. Per I, yeah, I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Oh boy, I heard. I remember and, that. And I'm telling you, a lot of people here they have a Ohio, yeah, the Ohio Media School. Ohio Media School. And I yes. always tell people, you know, a lot of people look down on it. Because I don't. I tell you what, they don't tell you what you're gonna say on the air, but they take away all the fear of all that equipment, of all that looking at the camera, yep. and, they, and and they do. I'm pretty sure the Ohio Media School does the same thing here, which is they do. You you do. You learn copywriting. You learn production. You learn on air. You learn yep. radio. Like and we were cutting tape. I don't know if yes. they still do it that way. 
but we learned to make commercials like cutting. I remember my, one of my one of my homeworks was to make a commercial of the Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> okay. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, really? and I made it up. You know, it was like his brother and Jimmy Page is gonna come in and, and Eric Clapton was gonna come in with his brother. So I, I remember that like that home. We had to do the homework. Yeah. Like cutting the tape. Yeah, back in the which day. Is, which is the way they used to do. It. And then we, used to, I remember in one of the classes we had to do the weather. Okay. And we would using cards, and we had to use we had to do the sports update. And then produce a video. We had a, an event. It was really cool because they brought in, like, they took us to like a press conference. And so you a, get a feel for that. There was a plane accident by the like, Tiraboro Airport, and Whoa. we have to go. No, it's only yeah. that, but it's like there was somebody giving the question. We have to ask the questions and then file the report. So nice. I got to see everything that was possible in the business of, of, of broadcasting, which I, I always tell people when I meet kids, you know, we do at the CAD, we have shadow students. And I always tell them, if you want to work with sports, just get a job yeah. at a sports team or, or a sports company because you don't know the possibilities inside. Once you get in there, you're going to realize there's all these other jobs yes. that you can do. And you're just narrowing yourself to like, oh, I want to be a sportscaster. Maybe maybe you're better at, at Something a else, community yeah. relations. Maybe you're better at, at a, I don't know. Right. So it's a, but, but anyway, if you want to do broadcasting, once you're in, it's a lot better to move around than than, than coming in, so I wish I had a plan, but I didn't. You know, I I I my I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting, loved it. It's the first time in my life I'm going to school for something that I really want. You're really <laughs> I'm really learning. I'm I'm really going. And the day I finish, my friend that at the time worked for Univision calls me up and says, St. John's University is looking for a play-by-play announcer for their basketball team. Are you interested? And one of the good things about myself is that I have never said no, I'm like, even, even though I don't know. You didn't give yourself a chance to have all the doubts creep in. No, I, can't I just do said this. yes, I'll yeah, do Yeah, I'll do it, what time? Yeah, so I went from making a good amount of money and, 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 and being so good at it to making $150 a game. But I was, my first ever workout, my first ever game, was the ECAC Holiday Classic wow. at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> you do not start in some... yeah, Exactly. And I think that's one of the luxuries. You don't start in some small gym in Dubuque, yeah. Iowa. That's one of the luxuries our market provides because it's so new. I was one of the first when when all the teams started yeah. doing doing uh, Spanish broadcast. So, you know, I didn't like Joe Michael, my partner with the Cavs, yeah. he started in single A ball. Yes, he Somewhere. worked his way up. He, yes. You know, in English, you have to work your way up. In, you, in your side of the yeah, business. Yeah, I worked in uh, you South worked, Dakota, put, yeah. Iowa, Buffalo. You know, the small market. Small so market. Then you got to show great, yourself. And great experience. You started out in Madison Square I started Garden. in New York at the Mecca. So it, it was great. And I was loving it. I, I really had, I really had, was having a good time preparing for the game. It yeah. was, it was a... Felipe Lopez last year. Okay. And then, uh, you know, there were some, a lot of players like Ron Artest or Ron Meta, Artest. Meta World yeah. Peace well, now. Yeah. He was there when I was there. Meta World Peace. So it was, it was fun. It was, it was great. I was doing what I was doing, but I, I wanted more, you know? You got into boxing then? I got into, so I got into, so my good friend who worked at Univision left Univision and started a radio network. And a lot of, they, they had been, like two or three radio networks that 
had started nationally but okay. had not succeeded because it's a tricky thing. It's tough to yeah. do radio, national radio, because in the morning people want to hear the traffic and the weather. They don't want to hear what's going on here in Cleveland. They don't want to hear what's going on in in Missouri or whatever. You know, right. they want they want to know. You know, I get it. So yeah. it, it was always hard. And he said, you know, I'm starting a uh, a radio network. So I'm not, I'm in. What do you want me to do? So I need to go to Las Vegas. Yeah, to do um, to cover a fight. So I started going to Las Vegas, and I swear to you, at the first the first couple of, game, of fights that I went to, it was just me and a little tape recorder. It wasn't Did even you know the art of boxing per se? I was a fan. Okay. I was a fan. I, I knew boxing. I knew I knew the I didn't know the, the all the yeah. But you of the learned business, it as you I, went. I knew I was a boxing fan. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. So <laughs> and again, I never say no. Yeah. Then you want to do boxing? Yeah, I'll do boxing. So. I go, and the first couple of trips, I, I kind of felt bad because I, maybe I got one or two interviews, and, but I quickly learned that boxing was a circle. And if you're not in that circle, you're, okay. in, you're not getting anything. So you had to work your way up. So I had to work my way up, and, I, and again, and I, we did pretty well because that network ended up being bought by Univision, who became Univision Radio. Nice. And I had the account when I took it, the account was purchasing like $35,000 a year in promotion. Okay. And by the time I left Univision, it was buying like 1.5 million of just wow. selling pay-per-views. So we did pretty well. You we did, did well. We did, we did very well. And then, so doing boxing, 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 I told my boss, I said, listen, if you want me to be good at this thing. I do some other stuff. You have to send me to cover all the fights, not just the Latino fight, because gotcha. I want to cover boxing for the boxing fan. Right. Not for the Latino boxing fan, for everybody. Okay. So I started, they started sending me, so I became really good friends with Oscar when Oscar De La Hoya was finishing oh, yeah. his career. Yeah. And he started. Did he kind of help you the most? Is, is like to he, learn the, the art he, of boxing? Well, he, he, in a way, he was more the promoters. Like Bob Aaron was really good Bob to Aaron, me. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, Top Rank him. was sure. always really good to me. He's a really, like a gentleman. Uh, top the buff, who is his son, who is his, his son, is also, you know, took over the company. But Bob Aaron was also very good. Bob, he had the he had the fighters back in the day. Gotcha. Yeah, and, he did. And they still do, but now what now is a little more complicated than than, than normal. But then Oscar, who fought for Top Rank, was starting his own promotional company, Golden Boy Promotion. So I'm like, you know, I'll help you. We'll we'll do the promotion. We'll do the thing. So that's so you saw both sides of it. You were you were you were doing the. My job was to prom- sell pay per views. You, you you sold Just the pay per view. Sure. You did the the, the and fights I did some themselves. Play, I did some blow by blow. Interviewed the the fighters yeah. afterwards. Oh, it was the best. We used to go and spend two days in the training camp and just like see them. Mm-hmm. Every all day, like wrong. Really learn the really ins and the outs. We would spend time with Miguel Cotto in, in Puerto Rico, with, with Pacquiao in Los Angeles. With, we do. I did uh, when the world awaits uh, De La Hoya and, and Mayweather. Yeah. We did a 11 city tour in eight days, and I was I was the only I was one of the you only Latino the media that was on the plane. We used to go from one city to. We started in New York. We took the train to to Philadelphia. From Philadelphia, we took different jets to Washington. So from from Philly to Washington, I went with Oscar. Wow. From Washington to Dallas, I went to with on on Floyd's plane. And then from Dallas to Houston, I went with Oscar. That's and, crazy, and like that. So it was really, it was, it was that was a fun time. 
it, it's really Vegas. It was a lot, a lot of time in Vegas. Yeah. Which cannot, that's where you got the name the mayor. We right? can, yes. We, can, <laughs> we cannot be good when you spend like three weeks a month in Vegas. But it, it was, it was, it was fun time. And, and and again, we we did a really good job as a company promoting the fight. So doing that, and again going back to the I don't know thing. My dream was always to do my own talk show. Oh, okay. You know, I always wanted to do that. Once, you know, my dream, my dream kept changing. Once, I, once I, once, sure. once I got one, I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? And we're in Vegas after a fight. We're hosting clients, and we're at a club, and it's literally like four in the morning, <laughs> and we are hanging with the people that manage um, the AutoZone account. AutoZone, the, the and, car place. Yeah, car, the car parts. So they, they're talking about, you know, we want to do a radio show. Uh, on, about cars, can you do it? I'm like, yeah, and I literally don't know anything. Didn't know a thing about cars. This just blows me away. This whole you're you're basically were the Latino click and clack. Yeah, and I and, and <laughs> let, let, let me tell you the story. So <laughs> so we're at the bar back in the day. I still have my drinks, and I'm we're drinking, and it's like the end of the night, the end of, almost morning, and she's like, hey, can you do a, a show? You know, a, a, a car show? And I'm like, sure, yeah, we can. Okay, so call me next week. And we'll, we'll get together. I'm like, literally, John, I'm going home thinking I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and buy a book on how yeah. to fix a, a, a yeah. Mustang. And oh my God. I'm going to figure something out, right? I'll yeah. put up a show. Keep up the BS, baby. <laughs> and <laughs> while I'm, and I'm not lying, I went to Barnes & Noble and I have a couple of books. You know, how to fix the Mustang. I always like the Mustang 65 convertible. So I'm like, awesome I'm going to start with that. It's like, like that. So at least I know, right? So I'm waiting in line at Amazon. <laughs> and you know how they have all these like impact items that you can actually buy. just put. And there is a, a cassette tape of click and clack. And I'm like, oh what the hell is God. that? And I'm like, click and clack. And I'm like, oh my God. So I bought it, and that's why I never, I'm never ashamed to say, I always try to be the Spanish click and clack. And I went home, <laughs> put, I went, put the thing in my car, and that, they, they, those guys were so good. I don't they know were if, so good. I don't know if they're still on the air, but they were One so... One of them's passed, I believe. Oh, passed okay, away. but they were so good they and were. entertaining. They were wonderful with the callers. Oh, my God. They so were funny. So now I'm like, yes, now I got my road. Now I just got to get myself a mechanic, because I have nothing about car. We got half of the deal here. <laughs> So we found a mechanic to the station on, uh, in New York, and I became the clown of the show. That's okay. I became the, the guy that would bring the mechanic down to a one-on-one level. Yeah. One, one-on-one level. When Break he started it down. talking about all these like terms, I'm like, wait, so what does that mean? So we, you know, we did a yeah. show, it was called El Garaje de AutoZone, the AutoZone yep. Garage. Auto, yep. Lasted like 12 years, made a lot of money for the state, for the company, and what we did was, we had, we opened a show with like a, a topic, how to change your oil, how to change a tire, you know, how, recommendations on how sure. often you need to change your oil. Yeah. And then we took phone calls. It, that's it. And people reacted to that show so well. It was once a week, an hour, and we used to get close to a thousand phone calls during the week. That wanted to be on the show. People would call and say, hey, this is John. I have a 1978 <laughs> the Mazda, whatever, Toyota, Toyota Camry, and it's making this noise. And my mechanic <laughs> was so good. He'd break it down. He would know exactly even what color the car was because of the problems the cars had. He knew kind of like the, the tendencies of the problems these, these, the vehicles had. 
And so we, we did really, I became the spokesperson for Castro Motor Oil, wow. who was like, you know, Castro GTX yeah. high mileage. And, like, for, and, and it was good. It, was, it worked great. So from there, I got my sports show. Okay. I actually became good on the radio, I guess. I was, so I, became, I got my talk show. It was called Locura Deportiva, it was Sports Madness. Sports Madness. And yep. the thing was, when I moved to Miami from New York, they, they hired me at Univision as the sports director. They had a two-hour show that talked exclusively about soccer. Oh. And most of it was Mexican soccer. The 70, 70 plus percent of the population, the Spanish population in the it's US is Mexican. Okay. So they were going for the... So my, my first move as a sports director was to change the show from sports madness, one hour, and soccer madness, one hour. So you can do whatever you want with that hour, and I'll talk about everything. But you guys go crazy on the soccer. I'll yeah. do the wacky yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I'll do. I'll talk soccer too. You're yeah, in the World Cup. You're in the champion final. We'll talk soccer too. But but I did it my own style. I I never been a guy that takes sports seriously. Sure. I was always the I was I I, I was always the clown. I was always the guy who always found some humor. Yeah. Humor on everything. So we talk about. You know, so now we got another outlet to promote the boxing. So we got the UFC to jump on board. We were doing boxing. We were doing the World Series. We had the rights for the NFL. So we became yes, we became the, the place to to go when you wanted to reach the, the Hispanic sports fan. So who who made the decision to get you to Cleveland in '14 when when LeBron came back? Was it? The Cavs directly, or was yeah. it people Univision said? Well, no, no, guy? I had led Univision at the time. Okay. I had done 13 years with them, and I had brought in, you know, it was it became a point of, like, I'm bringing a lot of money, and, and, and I'm not really getting any, I, I understood, like, the big the biggest part of the pie was for them, but it was, so it became, I, I left very amicably, and I, yeah. I, I admire everybody there, and then, the show that I that I started still on the air and yeah. now it's on TV and radio. Yeah. You know, it's going on to our first year on, on Locura Deportiva was the, the the Monday after Katrina hit. Oh, so wow. it's like 2005. Oh, yeah, 2005. August 29th we started. So and it's still on the air. So that's and they still have some segment that I that I cool. put on the show. So it kind of it feels good. That's nice. So by the time I had left Univision. And I was working with another company in the in the um, in the in the broadcasting business, and I was going through some hard times at home, you know, going through my divorce. And sure. Literally, John, I'm not lying to you. I'm a devout of, of Saint Jude, yeah. the, the the patron cause, the, the patron of causes. all the lost causes and everything. And I was at a lost point of my life. I was trying to find what to do, and I'm walking my dog, and I. I literally sitting in the park in the dark, and I'm going, you know, St. Jude, it's you, you, the, you, the guy that's yeah. right for this moment right now. You know, I need a show me, show me the way. Give me a sign. Give me a sign, right? I'm not lying to you. I get a text like <laughs> somebody jokingly says, "Hey, look who's looking for Spanish brokers, the Cavs." So I'm. <laughs> I applied immediately, right there, sitting in the I park. I know everything about <laughs> basketball. <laughs> I had done basketball. I had, I, done, I had done the Knicks. I had done the Nets. So yeah. I, oh, that's right. Yeah, I was like, St. John's. You know, I was like, 
And and I text, and then the next day, Dave Dombrowski, who's yeah, my Dave, boss no, here, no, and, well, great guy. And and Tom Wilson, who is the owner of uh, of the station, called me up, and they're like, you know, listen, we're very deep into the into the process, but send us your stuff. Send us your stuff, and I I think. I had more to offer than the other candidates because not only I was doing the nets at the well, time. Well, you had a wealth of broadcasting So my, broadca- my, my demo was like, a, I was doing the Spanish League for TV on Univision, you know, wow. the, 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 just the, the, on TV, but I had audio and I had video. So I sent it up and I said, you know, listen, come for, come, for, come for an interview. So I came in and I was thrilled with everything about the Cavs and the company and, and it just made so much sense. And LeBron was already here. Okay. Yeah, so. Uh, the first year was 14, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, my first year was okay. 14, and okay. it just made so much sense at the time. I, I, I never worked for a team directly. Yeah. When I did the Nets, when I did the Jets, when I did St. John's, when I did all these other teams, I did the Dolphins, I worked, the station paid me, and gotcha. the station took care of everything. So I never really was invested in the, the way I am now. company. Yeah, and just being part of the team, and it was, it was, just, it was just so... You know, inviting to me, and uh, it was the right decision for me to make. I think, you know, five years down the road, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I would change anything. I, How much do you enjoy doing the, the NBA versus college? Um, have you changed your craft in any way, shape, or form, or? Yeah, you, you know, games? you change every day. Yeah. I, I listen to myself every day. I think there's nobody to critique you better than yourself. So I, I think I changed in a different game, basketball, college, and, and the NBA. But, you know, with, with the NBA, it's easy in a way because I'm with the guys all the time. Yeah. So you're traveling with and the that's, team. Well, that's my job. You tr- you're traveling with the team. You're embedded. I'm, I'm embedded, correct. When I was doing the NFL, I still had my talk show. I had the boxing game. I had the, everything. You're juggling a lot of balls. I, I was juggling, and maybe I wasn't as prepared as I should have. But I have, you know, we made it through. But now is, this is my job. This is this is what I do. So it 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 it, it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't mean it's easy. You know, it's at least a ten hour prep time for every game. You have to, mm-hmm. you want to be. I think preparation in our business is what separates you. From, I agree. From from the rest, and 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 you know, we have a group of guys that are probably the most prepared guys in the business that I have known. And I'm not I'm not saying it just because it's the Cavs or because it's, they're my coworkers, but you know, John Michael is one of yeah, the guys. Yeah, he's tremendous. He's just one of the best guys that I have ever. And, and he's like you. Prepare. You know, he was doing he something else. Yeah. <laughs> he was and a he lawyer. Did, he was a lawyer. He was a, a trial lawyer. Yeah. And he changed the arc of his career. Yeah. Uh, just as you did. It's like that that book they write about. Uh, you don't. You know, the cheese is here, but you want the cheese over there. You just move yeah. the cheese to where <laughs> where it's you know where it's yeah. going to be best for you. But again, we. It kind of it helps you. Like Fred is also a Fred McLeod is a guy. Yeah, that I've known Fred himself. Like crazy, so it, it, it helps you, it helps me to know. I'm sure that I have real to good. stay on my, I have to stay on my toe because these guys are, you know, right. they're, 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 we all good. And I think that's all a, a reflection on, on, on the way Dave runs the, the operation. Dave's we great. all, we all, we're all able to, to do not what we want, but to do it the way we want it. it the only condition is just make sure you do your job, make sure you prepare, make sure you're, yeah. you stand out above and beyond everybody else. And I think we all do as a, as a group, as a team. And, 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 and it, it's just amazing to see how, you know, how these guys work. It's not just, you yeah. know, one guy or the other, you know, everybody, it's not. everybody's prepared. They, you know, Jim Jones is the guy. We all, we're all embedded. I, work I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how all the teams do it. 
I don't know if they are allowed to go to practice over there. We have part of my job is to go to practice and shoot around. Everything. That's a great thing to have. On and it's the road evolved. and at home. It's evolved over the years. In yeah. fact, if I can just uh, take a quick trip back mm -hmm. in time, when like Lenny back in the day, Lenny Wilkins would allow all of us to watch every second of practice. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. No, no, no. You know, we come in, the regular media, <laughs> we come in when they're shooting free throws, and that's how it is. And that's, yeah. all, that's all well and good. But you're with the team, you should have access. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but I, I don't think every team does. Okay, I, I get you. I don't think every team in the NBA allows their, their sportscasters to, to do, you know. Yeah, they just have a certain barrier. And it helps control. us because obviously we have to abide by a certain yeah. rule, unwritten rule, that yeah. there are things that we see that are not for public consumption. Yeah, there's but a there are things that help that we yeah. see that help us kind of see what's coming up in the game or how to prepare for the game. You know, at right. least we know in the morning who's starting or who's not. Maybe the, maybe the coach won't let everybody know until, until Later. he has to release it in the afternoon. But at least now I know I don't have to prepare or I don't have for to worry. A guy. I don't yeah. have to worry about X guy, but I have to be ready because this other guy is going to be playing more, he's going to be playing more minutes. Yeah. So you got to be ready. with. What was it like with just, you know, obviously the most famous basketball player in the world, the best player in the world, when LeBron was with the team for four years? Obviously, it was everything he said was newsworthy in many ways. We, we had to we had to kind of take that tact. If you were going to talk to LeBron about an aspect, not just about basketball, but what's going on in the United States uh, or the world, <laughs> it would make news. And, you, and I'm sure you were around some stuff that probably goes back to what you're saying. It remains with the team. It remains yeah, you know, we, inside it, stuff. I, have, I, I consider it a luxury and an honor to watch this guy do his thing every day. Same here. Day to in, see him from high school day all the way in and day out. out. And you see the work that he puts in. Yes, he has the talent. Yes, he has the ability. But yeah. he also puts in the hours and, and, and puts his body through some serious work. I mean. And, and, and that thing, that, that being said, just to watch him do his thing and see how good he is, how. People don't understand, you know, you always see people, the fans see the dunking and the plays and the triple doubles and all that. Yeah. But when you see him practice, I don't think people quite understand how high his basketball IQ is. It, it really it is, is unbelievable. I think how it's he knows the best in the game. How he knows what he knows, what's going on, what's going to happen, what's going to happen if you run this play or if you're not on this side. And I don't think I don't think there are many players in the NBA that actually have that ability to to to, to see that. To, I mean, he can play all five positions. He knows yep. all five positions. He in can the, guard in the, them all on the play. So he can run. He can run the point guard. He can run. He can be the side. He can be the two. He can be the three. So. A lot of things that he does are not really there for public viewing unless you really go in and dissect what he does. And that's why I always, you know, I criticize LeBron more as a fan when, because I, I, I grew up a Celtics fan for my years in Boston. Yeah, you, he, used he to, was the enemy. He sure. used to kill <laughs> the Celtics all the time, most of the time. So I, I never, and my show was in Miami. And when he was in Miami, I kind of hated how everybody was just, you know, with the heat, with the new big three. I, yep. I still think the Celtics were the original big three, but don't don't say that don't say that to the Heatles. But I, I, I my show was about controversy, 
and my controversy was poking, pushing buttons, and there was no button easier to push than to push a LeBron fan button in Miami. And it works were, to this day, Cleveland yeah, fans and LA, LA fans. Matter. So or, I remember or, when, when I came to Miami, a lot of my friends were like, oh my God, you're going to be working with LeBron. I'm like, yeah, of course I'm rooting for him. Now he's my teammate, you know? I, I, not that I don't root, I, not that I root against him now, but if he's playing with the Cavs, I'm yeah. not rooting for him. Absolutely. You know, I'm, that that's simple as it is. It's like the Celtics never paid me a penny to be their fan. The moment I be, I was hired by the Cavs, and like I tell Dave, I, I get resigned on two week contracts every two weeks. I'm a Cavs fan. I bleed, I bleed one and goal. <laughs> so and it, any everybody would do that. But again, when when you see. The things that he does, you know, people will criticize like, oh, LeBron is the GM, LeBron is this. When you have a person that capable of helping you, of the fact that he has been there and done that, of course you're gonna take his up, you're gonna take his yeah. point into consideration. He's the guy, he's the coach on the court. Absolutely. You know, so there's nothing. I, I never saw anything wrong. No and difference again, than Tom Brady running the yeah, show. and I never saw him disrespect anybody that has some position of authority, like coaches or yeah. assistant coaches. He he was always there because he wanted to win. Yeah. And I think when you're not on that on his side. That might bother people. I can remember in LeBron 1.0 before he went to Miami, asking, I think it was it was Mike Brown, how do you quantify what you have as a team when you have someone that is so good at what LeBron does? Mm-hmm. Because there are aspects that maybe he kind of masks or covers up for because of the extraordinary talents and intuitive nature in basketball he has. And I don't think you can get a real good answer to that because there are so you many can. things he does. It's you just. Can. And I tell you what, when I, my first year, 2014, remember he had problems with his back and his wrist. Yeah. And he was out like. He was out for a little while. Like, had a, a shot, few weeks. Shot or some kind of weeks. shot. Yeah. We were on the road when he came back, and we were practicing at Grand Canyon University. John, I'm telling you, the noise in that gym when he came back was so noticeable and so different. The, the steps, the running, and he always like, when they, when, they, um, when they do scrimmage, he always play with the, with, the, with, the, with the second unit. He always play like at the starters. But the way that everybody, it, it, that's what he brings to the team. That, that those are talking about quantifying things. Yeah. He, everybody practices harder when 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 everybody's at attention and everybody uh, there's competition in practice. There's no don't don't think it's just yeah. you know like going through the plays and everything. They they want to beat each other even in practice. <laughs> it's a, it is unbelievable to see how uh, how that that works out. It's amazing. But above all that, what I have been able to witness from LeBron off the court. Yeah. It just blows everything on the court out of the, not, and I'm not talking to you about this, his school and all the great work he does. The way he is with children, with kids, it, it's just unbelievable. It, it, he doesn't, he really puts himself out there. And and, and again, you know, nothing against the guy. He everybody makes decisions and for 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 their for their own benefit, right? right. But he he is quite a guy. He's, he's quite a quite a human being off the court as well. Well, now you go from LeBron James to. Baker Mayfield, <laughs> Nick Chubb, Denzel Ward, and of course this year you're looking at OBJ and, and all. What was your first season like as the play-by-play voice for the Browns? 
Well, it had to be really exciting. It was amazing. Because was, once again, you jump in and the team gets good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't want to take credit for it, but hey, you know, it makes sense, right? The Cavs won the title when I came. Yes. Um, that's why I told I tell Dan Gilbert every time I see him, but you can't you can get rid of me. All I do is go to finals, except for this last year. But it was incredible. I was a little... I want to say tenor because the second they offered it to me, I said yes. <laughs> you know, I go doing football is so much, it's so much different and so much yeah. fun because the preparation is just. It's, it's a great feeling in that it's, stadium it's, when, it's, especially it's when the team's doing well. None, none is better than the other, but it's just a different. And you're in a football town. Yeah, it's huge. and that's the thing. I always heard. Now you know, you know. Especially before I came in, it was like a one and thirty, one and thirty-one yeah. record. And Joe Gabriel, who is the beat yeah. writer for, for the good Cavs. Good guy, good, good Actually, man. He's, he's not the beat writer, he's the, we always tease with him, he's like the, 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 the founder of Cavs.com. You know, he worked with NBA.com when they started doing it, he used to cover like different teams. So he's my, he's my partner on the plane. And he always tells he's me, good dude. If, the Cavs, if, if you saw what the Cavs did for the, for the parade, if the Browns win the championship, you won't be able to put... No. None of I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> I don't even know where you're going to hold like, that's what he. That's what he said. Like, if they win the title, you, Cleveland won't know what to do with Streets with, aren't you know, big enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always... I came to Cleveland when I was doing the NFL, the national games, probably like a couple times. But the NFL trips are so different because you come in the day before, and then you leave the next day, you know, in the morning, one o'clock flight, one o'clock, one o'clock uh, game. So you have to be at the stadium at eight again. So there's really not nothing to do. So I never really went out. Yeah, out you of couldn't. The hotel. You didn't give you a chance to. So I didn't know anything about Cleveland. I knew about the Browns. I knew about the miserable days, and I knew about the whole, you know, the Art model lead yeah. taking the yeah. team and everything. So when they offered it to me, I said yes, I'm not taking it. But I was a little hesitant about knowing. Our Cavs season was going was not was not going to be a 60 win season, and you know I don't care what anybody says losing sucks. It does, and I hate it, and and I don't care, and I know you're not gonna go undefeated in the NBA, but it, it it's not fun. It's it's so I was like mm, I don't know if I want to get into this you know there's more losses and I have to deal with you know so I but I, I took it and and it, right off the bat it felt different you know. And I have to tell you, going back to what well, you were asking me about Jack Buck. Yeah, the call. Yeah, who, by the way, is one of the, was one of the most nicest gentlemen. I met him and I explained to him my situation and he was so happy to hear from me and he, he gave me tips and he used to call me and every time we saw each other, he used to tell me, like, most of the things that I still practice, Jack Buck told nice. me to do. Like, to listen to myself, to do exercises with my voice, to do that song. And, and so... That moment, the I don't believe what I just saw, to me, now is Kyrie Irving's shot yeah. in game seven. But the moment Baker Mayfield came on the field against the Jets, against the Jets you know, when you do football, and of course, you know, the, the budget in Spanish is, I always say, our, my, our budgets are also in Spanish, so like, I don't have that many. I don't have, I didn't notice. Uh, Tyra Taylor being hurt because we okay. our boot yeah is he on, kind of, he got knocked out of the, on the yeah our boot is on the end zone gotcha. opposite the, the dog pound so the bench is on our right yeah so I didn't you know and there's so much going on I didn't notice but I did hear 
the roar of the crowd. And then I feel a thump, and Joji, the Tommy goes, and I look, and I'm like, oh my God, there it is. And it felt like out of a movie, John, the, the moment. And the way he came in and completed, like, he had more yards in those last two drives in the first half than, than both quarterbacks had together. It felt like one of those scenes that you see in the movie, and you're like, come on, does he really, is he really going to do well because he comes yeah. in? And he's like... <laughs> Just, you know the Hoosiers moment. Yeah, and, and that's how he felt. It was it, that was one of those moments that it, it was just amazing to see the crowd in Cleveland because I think the Cleveland fans are amazing. The football fans, they just, really are. It's just unbelievable. And Joe Gio was told me, you know, if you put a helmet in the middle of the of progressive of uh, First Energy Stadium in the middle of February and it's snowing, people would show up just to see the helmet. He's right. <laughs> He's absolutely. He, I mean, this is a city that had a parade. For an 0 and or 16, an 16 right? Yeah. To send a message to management, to send a message to the team that we're loyal fans, but there's a point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the good thing that the Browns have gotten so much better. Well, you had your own kind of, you know, I can't believe what I just saw moment when Nick Chubb goes 93. Oh, my God. Yards. 94 yards. 94 yes. yards. Yeah, that was against uh, Atlanta. It was, it was one of those moments. Believe it or not, I have never watched the Terminator. But it's one of those phrases that become, you know, part of the folklore. And it's just one of the things that I, I always tell people is, for the most part, I would, I would, I would, I would think I can take the advantage of speaking for everybody that that's what I do. It's like we don't plan. No, you can't. What comes out of our mouth? Like I really have to go back that touchdown. You know, they, the Browns do a really good job of putting a, a GoPro camera in my booth yeah so then they can post the highlight with, with my reaction which is, which is something the fans like to see, i right? think people like to see that stuff and right off the bat joe uh, jason gibbs right after the game he goes hey send me the play and like what well, happened how did that play go i'm like i don't remember what i said i just i know i went crazy but i don't remember what i said <laughs> <laughs> so i come home and i edit what i recorded and i First of all, I'm, I'm praying. I'm like, please make sure, please, please, please make hope that it came out right, you know, because you don't know. Sometimes without a spotter or without, you don't know, you like, there've been times last season, there was a time when I called against the, against the Raiders. I called Nick Chubb running the ball the whole time, but it wasn't Nick Chubb. It was, it was, um, what's his name that got traded? The OSU. Carlos Hyde. Carlos High. Yeah. It was Carlos High running the ball, but back, you know, yeah. from where we sit. Right. So first of all, I'm praying, I'm praying that I call the whole, the call right, right off the bat, and I thank God I did. But I don't know what came to my mind. That was the first thing that came to my mind, and out of my mouth when I saw him break the last tackle or yeah. get avoid the last guy, which would be not la vista, baby. <laughs> So it came. Thank God it came out good because it everybody did. wanted to see that. That was probably the play of the year for, for uh, even though there were so many after. But that was the moment of last season to me that it was just you know you you don't you don't prepare for those moments. You 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 can't. You prepare for after the run. Okay, that's that's Nick Chubb longest touchdown in his career. Da, 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 da. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's something, and that's something you have. And, yeah, something you, but know, you don't prepare. Know, yeah, you know that. Play. You know, if this guy hits a home run, this is the 50th home run of the You're year. Ready. This is the third year in a row he's had 50 or right. or whatever it might be. Well, obviously, you're in a great position now with the you know the Browns being so much better. Let's bring this to present day, but the sport that you're very well versed in, in boxing. What happened over the weekend? Oh my with God. With Andy Ruiz. 
what in the world? What did you think going in? And well, I haven't been following the sport as much as you know. I've been covering some of the pay-per-view, especially on the heavyweights. Yeah. You know, I I covered the the Wilder Fury first one, and and when I saw the Wayne, and I saw Andy Ruiz getting the get on the scale. Yeah. He didn't look like he just went through a six-week training camp, right? I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. I sent a picture to my trainer and I said, "Hey, I don't think I'll be coming over anymore. I don't need you anymore." This guy just this guy just beat Adonis and he and, did. and won three three heavyweight fight uh, title. But that's what happens in boxing. It, it it's not like in other sports where you it's like one in a lifetime upset. In boxing, you can't take anybody lightly. And then also, to be honest with, with everybody, like he boxes a lot better than he looks. Yeah. John Reed. I mean, uh, yeah. Andy Reed. He he he, yeah, he, he really moves. He really throws. He's really good at the jab. He's really good going back. Quick and, on his feet. And, okay. and very well prepared. So yeah. that being said, I still don't know how he shows up like that. He obviously doesn't have a nutritionist. <laughs> I, and of course, I, I looked on, you know, social media was having a field day with people making fun, but there he was at the end, and there is, you know, he's the heavyweight freaking champ of the yeah. world. And now he's a big, now it's going to be what happens because he is managed by the same people that manage Wilder. So now they all, have, they both have all the titles. Yeah. And this is the, he wasn't even the, the opponent. The original opponent yep. got taken out because he failed a, a drug test. Yep. So he took it. He's like, hell yeah, I'll take it. And this guy's only had one loss. He's like yeah. 32 and one. I'm so happy, especially about social media, because I went into it and I look at his record. He's like 32 and one or 33 and one now. But like, you know, 20 fights are eight rounds or less. He's fought 12 or 13 guys with double digit losses. He's 25 of the, of the opponents have more than five losses. So I was I was about to, like, who is this guy? Yeah. But I saw Freddie Roach talking about him, and he spoke so highly of his boxing. So that, to me, that's it. Uh, that, that, that stopped doubting him. Right. And then I saw other guys just talking. They call him the, the Mexican Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now he's very apropos, right? Like, so I once Freddie Roach commented in a good manner about his boxing. I was okay, let me watch. So I watched the fight. I literally sat there and watched. Boxing is, and I'm telling you because I love the sport, but it's, it's so disappointing sometimes. And I always say, people always say, oh no, that's it, boxing is done. It's yeah, like, that's the end of the sport. Boxing was born <laughs> with a black eye. And it's never gonna go away. It's never gonna happen. And people are gonna always love the fact of seeing two human beings beating the crap, beating the crap out, of out of each other. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with it. People might see it wrong, but there is something. It's like a Roman times, you know, the present time. You're seeing two guys, bet the they're best at what they do, and punching each other. Who, everybody likes that. It's like people watch NASCAR for the accidents, right? For the crashes. They're like boxing is not going to go away. There's a lot of things that need to work. They need to fight. I think a lot of people were waiting for Joshua to win so they could have the undefeated heavyweight champ fighting for the title unification. But that's what happened. When you plan, <laughs> you know. Best laid of plans of <laughs> <Yeah>. mice and men. <laughs> 
I'm sure John Reed, I mean, uh, Andy Ruiz had uh, other plans. You know, he became the first heavyweight champion of Mexican From descent. Mexico. I think that's he pretty awesome. He was born here, but Mexico has never had a heavyweight champion. And now they do. Now, they, you know, he, he earned, I mean, he beat him. He did. And not only that. He beat him after getting up, getting from the camera. I think that was the mistake that Joshua made. He had two minutes. He dropped him yeah. early in the fourth round. Yeah. And he rushed because I think he had to wait and he, he, he opened himself up to whatever. I'm sure, obviously, now we know Ruiz has heavy hands. He does. But uh, he just, he, that was his mistake. And he was lost from that point on. Yeah. Wow. He, just, he just couldn't take it. So that, that's the, the beauty about boxing. It'll he'll, 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 he'll take you back. <laughs> Well, Rafa, you've had a knockout of a of a of a career. It's been a it's been an outstanding pleasure to uh, chat with you, and I wish you nothing but the best, my man. Thank you so much. I'll make a special a special episode on the on the Browns parade when we. When we <laughs> <do>. <laughs> Thanks, man.